May I speak in the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Today, as you will hear several times, is the beginning of the church's year. Happy New Year. The first Sunday of Advent, and to those who are liturgically minded, it's even more exciting than that, because we just finished year C and we go all the way back to year A. So, what does that mean? Well, the beginning of a year is always a time to look back, to be sure, and also to look forward. We look back with sometimes joy, sometimes nostalgia, sometimes regret. We look back on the things we said thank you for, and perhaps the things we didn't say thank you for. For the goodbyes that we said, and the goodbyes that we didn't say. But, as I've said many times before, as a Christian, just looking back isn't good enough. We need to look forward, because it is in looking forward that our best days lie. And so, on this day, we look forward to the church's year. We look forward to the coming of Christ, to God, who came down to earth in just a few weeks' time. We then celebrate the ministry on earth of Christ, of his death on a cross, of his resurrection, of his ascension. And at the end of the year, last Sunday, we celebrate the perfection that will come at the end of all time. And our readings today speak to that. The first of them, the reading from Isaiah, speaks to that ending of time, to the things when all things will be made perfect. In this beautiful, beautiful passage, the prophet writes, he shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. He shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And that is a beautiful and necessary vision. That is the hope which keeps us going. But, as you may have noticed, that is not what's happening right now. We have a past, a present and a future, but we only actually live in one of those. We live in the present. Whatever our regrets about the past, we can't change it. And whatever our hopes for the future, if we aren't doing something now in the present, their hopes, their aspirations, yes, inspiring, but we need to do them. And that's what our second reading, what the gospel reading speaks to today. At the beginning of this year, we are told to be prepared because we do not know when that end time will be. We do not know when we will be called to account for what it is that we have done in the present moment. And what Jesus says is, even I, the Son of God, do not know. You do not know. Only God the Father knows. And therefore, be prepared, because it will come at a time when you are not expecting it. 
when you're eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage, when you're out in the fields, when you're grinding corn, one shall be taken and one not. You do not know the time. The past has no relevance to this. The future, when you hope to do good things, when you promise yourself you're going to do good things, the future is just the future. If it happens now, here is what our reading says to us. Three words, maybe four. Are you ready? Are you ready now? Now, what does that mean? Does that mean, like the best preppers, that we should have stores of food, maybe even guns and ammunition, that we should be ready for the apocalypse? No, I don't think so. Because actually this, this passage, this saying of Jesus, is part of two chapters in St. Matthew, which really, for me, are the key to almost everything. Chapters 24 and chapter 25. At the beginning of 24, the disciples asked Jesus, as he talked about the destruction of the temple, when will this happen? And how will we know what it is? And before our reading, he tells them what will happen. But after this, he tells them how to be prepared, how to be ready now. There are three parables and one story. The first parable is about the trustworthy servant or slave and the untrustworthy. A master goes away and entrusts his servant with his goods, with the other workers, and tells him to look after them. And the first slave does that. And when the master returns, he says, well done, and puts him in charge of more things. But the other servant, the other slave, doesn't. He goes, the master, where is he? When's he going to come back? Ah, I can sort that out in the future. And so he falls in with drunkards, bad types. And the master returns unexpectedly, and he's out. So that's parable number one. Parable number two, depending on how you want to translate the Greek, is the parable of the twelve wise and foolish virgins or bridesmaids. And in this story, there are twelve bridesmaids at a feast, and the bridegroom's late. Six of them have their lamps prepared and ready. Six of them don't. They all fall asleep. This is not just about being awake. But when the bridegroom turns up unexpectedly at midnight, six of them are ready to go and go into the feast with the bridegroom. Six are not ready, and the door is shut on them. And then the final parable, full parable, is the one which has always scared me the most, which is the parable of the talents. And in this, a master goes away and he gives his three workers or slaves. To one, he gives five talents, an enormous sum of money. To one, he gives two talents. And to one, he gives one talent, still an amazing amount of money. And the first slave goes away with the five and trades those five and makes five more. And when the master returns, he says, well done, true and faithful servant. And he gives him more besides. The one who gets two talents equally 
goes away and trades with them. And when the master returns, he didn't know when he was going to return, the master says, well done, true and faithful servant. But to the one servant, to the servant to whom he gives one talent, that servant who is scared of the master goes away and buries it and returns that one talent intact to the master. And the master says, why did you not do something with this? Why did you not do something with this? And he banishes him. And then the final story at the end of Matthew 25 is part, is part judgment and is part parable. We call it the parable of the sheep and the goats, but it is a judgment story. And in that, the goats are sorted to one side, the sheep to the other, good sheep, bad goats. And the good sheep say to, say to the judge, to Jesus, they say, why have you done this? What have we done to help you? And he says, when I was thirsty, you gave me water. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was ill, you cared for me. When I was in prison, you visited me. Because one of these things that you did to one of the least of my brothers and sisters, you did to me. And this gives us, in the totality of those parables and those stories, the answer to how do we live a right life now? A full and complete life now, where we are ready at any time to be snatched away to be held to account, to answer for ourselves. But what does that mean? What does that mean to us? What does it mean to me? What does it mean to you? Not so many of us here regularly come across starving people, naked people, ill people, yes, to be sure. Strangers, yes, sort of. Prisoners, sometimes. And to the extent that we can help them in the course of our lives, then yes, we are doing that. But what about me? I do not come across many of those people. But still, I have to lead a life. I have to lead a Christian life. I have to be ready. What does it mean? Well, 35 years ago, I was given some sound advice as I was sort of drifting into tax law. And that was, when you go to a party, never mention you're a tax lawyer. It will drive people away. So it is with some trepidation that I bring that into a sermon, but here goes. What does it mean for me, living life as a lawyer, as well as a priest, as well as a father, as well as a neighbor and a friend? How do I live all of that life being ready? It doesn't mean about cleansing myself on a Sunday morning. It doesn't mean having appropriate regrets about the past. It doesn't mean having great hopes for the future. It's how do I live my life now? And let me give one small example. There are plenty of professionals here. There are plenty of teachers. There are plenty of accountants. There are plenty of lawyers. There are plenty of lobbyists. There are plenty of people who have worked and are now retired but who volunteer, there are teachers, there are parents, 
All of us have that full life. But I can only talk about mine. And tax law, to be sure, can be challenging. But let me give one example of how this might play out. One of the things that I do at work involves ESG, environmental, social, and governance. It's a bit of a buzzword. Some people call it woke. But I promise you, there's something real there. And the ultimate aim of ESG, in particular, is to promote the environmental health of the planet, which in the end is the health of us all. There are lots of people, lots of companies, lots of CEOs who make net zero pledges. What that means is that their business by 2030 or 40 or 50 will be net zero, or even no zero, I mean no carbon at all. It's not like the trade-offs. But, to be honest, those pledges are like the reading from Isaiah. They are the beautiful ending to the story. They are where we all hope to be, but they are not where we are now. So how do we get there? Well, that brings us back to the, to the gospel reading and to those other readings. Because to get to that ultimate aim, to that desired for outcome, where we are caring again for the planet, we need renewable energy. We need to move away from fossil fuels. And believe it or not, tax, yes, tax, can play a part in that. It can send signals, carbon pricing. It can provide incentives for renewable energy. It can help us move there. And all of those are good because those will move us towards that ultimate goal. But there's more. Because this is not just about the technicalities of it, but what the gospel story tells us, what the following parables tell us, is how do we live right with other people? There is an idea, along with this energy transition idea of moving from fossil fuels to renewables, there is also an idea of just transition, which actually takes into account the people who are affected by this, because moving from one form of energy to another is disruptive. It is costly. Sectors and industries will be affected, people will lose jobs, and guess what? Those least able to care for themselves, to help themselves, the poorest, will be those who suffer. And guess what? Tax can help. Because if you raise that money, and you actually use that money not just to incentivize the new activities, the new technologies, but you give it to those who will be affected to help them through this transition. If you give it to those who will be most badly affected, then you will have done something for real people as well as for the planet. That's not easy. But at the same time, that is what being ready now is about. It's about living a whole life which is focused on others and focused on God. It's not about expressing regrets for the past, although that may be important. And it is not about aspirations for the future, important though those may be now, be, be as well. It is about how do we live our lives now? It is that question which I must answer and which you must answer today, right now, in this minute.
Are you ready now? Are you ready now? Amen.